this morning, we're going to be looking together at the priority of prayer. So we're going to be looking together at the priority of Jesus of prayer. You know, when you read through the four Gospels and you actually look for it, one of the striking things is just how much it's noted that Jesus is in prayer. It seems as if the biographers of Jesus were, were so caught up by this that they, they, they felt like to highlight, uh, you know, the life of Jesus meant to highlight his own prayer life. And so again and again in the Gospels, we find Jesus in prayer. We find him in prayer in the face of crisis, in prayer before the crack of dawn, in prayer through the night, in prayer before making major decisions, in prayer for his friends, in prayer for his enemies, in prayer in the wilderness, in prayer in the garden, in prayer on the cross. Always, everywhere, we find Jesus in prayer. And I think the gospel writers highlight the prayer life of Jesus to tell us this. To become like Jesus is to... Become like Jesus in our life of prayer. To follow Jesus is to follow his example of prayer. Jesus put it like this in the Gospel of Luke. He said, every disciple, when he is fully trained, becomes like his master. In other words, if you follow Jesus, you will learn to pray like Jesus. Now, this creates a little bit of a dilemma for most of us because who on earth in this room prays like that? Who among us could say, I pray like Jesus? There was a study of evangelical leaders years back, and the study revealed that on average, these evangelical leaders prayed for less than five minutes a day. And some of us have a difficult time with prayer. Some of us, for example, have intellectual issues with prayer. You know, we think about the sovereignty of God. God controls the world in providence. And if God rules the world in providence, then why do we pray anyway? I mean, what difference does prayer make anyway? Some of you have personal problems with prayer. Some of you have prodigals that you have really begged God that he would send them home, and they've not come home. Some of you perhaps would love to be married and you've prayed for a spouse and God has not given you a spouse. Some of you would like to be healed and you've prayed for healing and God has not given you healing. And you think just prayer doesn't really work or at least it doesn't work for me. Maybe it works for other people, but prayer doesn't work for me. And of course, some of you are doers and you measure the value of the day by how much you're able to get done. And some of you are so aggressive in this that even if something is not on your to-do list and you got it done, you go ahead and write it down on your to-do list and check it off just so that you can have it there, right? Anyone in the room like that, you know? But quite frankly, when you're praying, it just feels like you're not getting something done. And it can be difficult to pray because you feel like it's a waste of time. And then, of course, there's the perpetual problem of distractions when we do take time and pray. You know, we live in an age of multimedia. We have Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and text messages and cell phones and gaming and YouTube and Netflix and television. I mean, who among us can settle our mind for five seconds to pray? I relate well to the words of that great poet John Donne when he said this. He said, I throw myself down in my chamber and I call in and invite God and his angels thither. And when they are there, I neglect God and his angels for the noise of a fly, and for the rattling of a coach, and for the whining of a door, a memory of yesterday's pleasures, a fear of tomorrow's dangers, a straw under my knee, a noise in mine ear, a light in mine eye, and anything, a nothing, a fancy, a shimmer in my brain troubles me in prayer. 
Can anyone in here relate to that? You know, you sit down to pray, and within seconds, it's like you're thinking about bacon. You know, you're like, God, I, I pray for your kingdom to come. I wonder what I'm going to have for breakfast. I think I'll have bacon. I like bacon. Anybody else like bacon? And then all of a sudden, you're like, where on earth am I alone in this? So, you, so we face this tension. On the one hand, we're, we're called, we're invited to learn how to pray like Jesus but on the other hand, we're undisciplined and we're distracted and we have our doubts and, and we have our worries. It doesn't seem to work. And so we struggle with prayer. And if, if you can relate at all to what I've said, if I've even nicked the corner of your experience when it comes to prayer, I have good news for you because there was a man that came to Jesus, this unnamed disciple, and he said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And in response, Jesus gives what is, without question, the most helpful little paragraph ever written in the history of the world on prayer. And we have it right here in front of us that we're going to look at this morning. Now, we could literally spend months on the Lord's Prayer, and I hope one day to actually do a series together looking at the Lord's Prayer. You know, the, the Lord's Prayer is one of those things that it is shallow enough for a child to play in, and yet it's deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And so we're going to do this morning is we're just going to do a flyover, and I want us to observe four things this morning about this prayer, four things about the prayer. And as I, as I was working on the sermon this week, I really wanted to be helpful to you who might struggle with prayer this morning. And so I hope that these four observations provide some help for you in your own life with God in prayer. And so first thing I want to note is the pattern then we're going to look at the petitions, and then we'll look at the partner, and then finally we'll look at the most important word in this prayer. Couldn't get a final P on that last point, I'm sorry. You're okay with that? Can we go on? Is anybody else held up on that? Are we all right? Okay, let's go. So number one, let's note the pattern that Jesus gives us in this prayer. Look what it says in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. It's interesting, isn't it, what evokes this teaching on prayer? It's actually the prayer life of Jesus. Jesus is praying, and this man is like, how does he develop this? Like, I want to learn how to pray from him, you know? And he goes up to him and says, Lord, teach us to pray. And notice what Jesus says. And he said to him, when you pray, say. Now, let's just pause there. Jesus is now going to tell us what to say when we pray. In other words, when he's asked, teach us to pray, Jesus responds by giving us words. And this is good, because I can remember back when I was just a teenager, and I had the very first experience I ever had in praying in public. I don't know if anybody else has a memory of this, or you've had an experience of this, but you know, like you're in a little prayer group, and you realize uh, that everyone's going to have to go around and pray out loud, and you're like, oh, I don't want to pray out loud in front of other people. It makes me feel awkward. I'm uncomfortable about this. They're not going to really make me do this. And I told the youth pastor, I'm like, I can't do this. I'm afraid. You know? And he said, he said, Josh, Josh, don't worry. Don't worry. He said, just pray whatever is on your heart. And so when it came around to me, I just found this empty, vacuous place in my heart. I'm like, I don't have anything to say, you know? But isn't it interesting that when Jesus is asked about prayer, he doesn't say, what, pray whatever's on your heart. That's okay. That's not terrible advice. Instead, he gives us words. 
He says, when you pray, say this. And he gives us a prayer that we can repeat verbatim, that we can say often, that we can say corporately. But of course, Jesus here is giving us more than words. Jesus in our text is giving us a pattern to shape our own prayer life. Or put it like this, uh, my daughter Mia will oftentimes uh, instigate a, uh, a little baking experiment in the kitchen. And so she'll get out the bowl and she'll start throwing all the ingredients together, you know, she'll turn it around in, in the bowl. And then you have this undistinguished, unformed blob of, you know, flour and salt and butter and sugar and whatnot. And then sometimes she'll take that and she'll pour it into little shapes. We have these little like, you know, metal animals and stars and whatnot. And then you stick it in the oven and it forms into the shape of those little patterns, of those forms. And what Jesus is giving us in this text is he's given us a form, he's given us a shape that we can pour into our hearts, our longings, and our needs. He's giving us a pattern. And this is really helpful for us. This pattern is actually intended to shape and form us and our own desires and our own life as disciples of Jesus. There was a... uh, uh, there's a Christian ethicist named Stanley Hauerwas who teaches at Duke Divinity School, and he famously wrote this essay a while back on um, education. And in this education, he criticizes teachers whose main goal is to get children to think for themselves. And listen to what he says. He says, I have elsewhere attacked the current notion that colleges and universities should be about the Socratic function of allowing students to, quote, make up their own minds. This assumption celebrated in the movie The Dead Poets Society. Anybody here seen that movie with Robin Williams? It's going to be inspiring. Whose protagonist is a teacher who intends, above all, to help students make up their own minds. My own view, however, is that, the con- is that that concept of education represents a completely corrupt because most students do not have minds worth making up. Now, don't laugh. Most of you don't either. Uh, I'm just kidding. But his point actually in the essay is that students and young people actually need to be formed in a community of character in order to have minds worth making up. You need to actually fill your minds with good things before you can have right notions about critical issues of our day. You have to do something more than just read the, the latest blog post or someone's two-sentence tweet in order to have a well-formed mind. You need to immerse yourself in good resources in order to have a mind worth making up. Does that make sense? Well, I think Jesus gives us this prayer for the very same reason, so that we might actually immerse ourselves in this prayer and have our minds soaked in this prayer, thinking about the prayer, understanding the prayer, so that then as we go out and pray and we fashion our prayers after this pattern, we have prayers worth praying, as it were. So Jesus in here is giving us a pattern. But let's dive a little deeper and let's now look at the petitions that he gives us. Notice what he says. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Now, you'll notice Jesus has given us a more concise version of the Lord's Prayer here than what we have in Matthew's Gospel. It's a little bit longer, it's a little bit elongated. 
And someone says, well, why is that? Well, it's probably because Jesus, like most great teachers, will recycle material. And so Jesus probably is giving us another teaching on prayer, but I think what it indicates is that he's not giving us necessarily the exact precise words we need to say every time we pray, but he is giving us a form. And it's interesting, actually, in the first century, you notice um, the, the guy who comes to Jesus, he says, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And it was common in the first century for rabbis and teachers to actually have a prayer that they would give to their disciples so that their disciples could learn the prayer because that would teach their disciples some of their core values and priorities. And in the same way that when our children are growing up in our schools, we give them the Pledge of Allegiance, and why do we do that? Well, it's to socialize them as good citizens of America. And so too, the prayer was given to disciples in order to socialize us as good citizens of the kingdom of God. It's to steep us in the values and the priorities of Jesus. And the priorities are reflected in this prayer. And notice how these petitions follow a rhythm. Notice the rhythm. It first begins with you and your, and then it moves to us and our. Did you see that rhythm? Your name and your kingdom. And then it moves to give us, forgive us, and lead us not. And so the prayer begins with who, class? Begins with, and then it comes to us. And in this way, I think what Jesus is doing, he's actually revealing to us something of God's menu items when we go to prayer. Uh, yesterday, our family, we went to, to lunch with some other family members, and we went to In-N-Out Burger. Now, when I was back in Albuquerque, there were always these people that would be, oh, you know, oh, you know, oh, you're, you live in California, you guys have In-N-Out Burger. Every time I go to In-N-Out Burger, you know, I get to the promised land, I can have In-N-Out Burger, you know, and they talk on and on about In-N-Out Burger. And I just think, man, you, you must never have had a real hamburger if you think this is like the heights of it. Are we together on this, people? Like, if you've had one of those, you know, just like a freshly hand-shaped patty made from locally sourced, sustainably raised, grass-fed beef, cooked on about a 700-degree cast iron that sizzles, and you get that crust, and you get that salt, and then it's juicy on the inside. You say, shut up, you're killing me. I know, it's like 11.15, right? I know what I'm having for lunch. But you go to In-N-Out, and the beauty of In-N-Out, of course, is that the menu is so simple. And its simplicity is a little bit deceptive because, you know, you can take that simple menu of like four items, you know, the double-double, the cheeseburger, the hamburger, the french fries, and then you can kind of like, there are all these like um, hidden items on the menu. You can order french fries animal style, or your hamburger animal style, or you can order a, a four by four, or an eight by eight, and you can do some variation on the general theme that is the menu. And I think what Jesus is giving us here is God's menu. Now, if I were to go into In-N-Out Burger and I would say, you know, I know I don't want a double-double or that the, I, what I want is an arugula salad with a piece of salmon. They'd say, man, you've come to the wrong place. We don't serve that here. And so too, I think oftentimes when we go to prayer, we come to God and we order off of the wrong menu. God gives us his menu in this prayer. 
It reveals to us his priorities. And of course, God's priorities are not just given to us in this prayer. You can see it in other prayers in the Bible. There's prayers in Ephesians and in Philippians and Colossians. Uh, The Old Testament has an entire book. It's the largest book in the Old Testament. It's a prayer book. It's the book of Psalms. And so we can learn how to pray by praying these prayers in the Psalms, in Ephesians, in Philippians, in Colossians, and here by praying the Lord's Prayer. And there we identify what's on God's menu, what God is about. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. Use written prayers. Use them as your pattern. Pray the petitions that are in these written prayers. Use them to then do variations on the theme in these prayers. And it helps and guides your own life with God in prayer. Because a lot of us, like, we just, I mean, I I just said, we just, we just. Do you ever find yourself just saying, Lord, we just, we just, and then you rattle off a couple, and you kind of get in these rote habits of prayer. And by engaging in the prayers in the Bible, it actually expands your vocabulary or your repertoire, and it gives you a better understanding of the menu that we can approach God with. Are you with me? Okay, so we see the pattern. Secondly, we see the petitions. But thirdly, I want you to know the partner in prayer that we're introduced to here. Look at what it says. He says in verse 4, and forgive us our sins. So here he is praying that God would give him or give us forgiveness. He says, pray, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Give me grace. And notice the partner of this petition, this prayer, is action. Notice what he says. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Isn't this interesting? That right in the largest petition in the Lord's Prayer is our own action, actually a commitment to act. And how are we committing ourselves to act in this prayer? What we're essentially saying is, God, what I'm asking you to do for me, I am committing to do for others. God, forgive me, show me mercy, have grace on me, so that I might be a conduit and and an instrument of your grace and mercy in the lives of others. So let me ask you this, just a very practical question. Who do you need to forgive? With whom do you need to reconcile? Jesus said, if you're going to worship, if you're going to pray, and it it occurs to you in your mind that you're holding some bitterness, some anger against somebody else, he says, put down the gift you were going to go offer me in, in worship, and he says, go and reconcile with your brother. At another place in the Gospels, Jesus says, I don't want sacrifice. Like, that's not what God wants. I want mercy. And he's speaking about our relationship to other people. Because according to Jesus, there's this intricate relationship between the horizontal, or, or the horizontal, or the vertical, or our relationship with God. I guess this is vertical, right? There's an intricate relationship between the vertical and the horizontal, between our love and our relationship with God and our relationship to others. Or we could put it like this: in um, in the New Testament, we're not invited to pay God back. God pours out his grace on us freely and without demanding anything from you. And isn't this wonderful? Like, your relationship with God is based on grace. Like, some of you have had those moments in your life where you're like, God, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. But I have bad news. Like, that doesn't work because God doesn't need anything you have to offer him. 
He's never going to think it's a good deal because you don't have anything to offer God. How can you offer anything to that infinite, eternal, unending sea of love and of grace and of holiness and of power? And so God never asks us to pay him back, but he does call us to pay it forward, to take what he's done for us and then to send that off into the lives of other people. And so if God is reconciled with you by his free grace, then you move toward others and you're gracious and you're kind to them. And so the partner in our prayer is our action. Do you see that in the text? Forgive us as we forgive others. And I just want to say very straight, there are some of you who you do have something with other people and you need to get that right. And this morning, God is speaking to you. And he's telling you, you you can't hold on to this anger and this bitterness forever. Or you can't do that and continually say, God, have mercy on me. God, have grace on me. God says, I will freely pour out my grace on you. But what I've done in you, now I want to do through you. And I want to send it out to other people. So the partner of prayer is action. So we've seen the pattern Jesus gives us. We've looked a bit at the petitions that he gives us, you and us. Thirdly, you've seen the partner of prayer is action. But fourthly, I want you to see in our text the most important word, the most important word. And as we move into this fourth and final point, I want to invite our band members to come up here, and they're, they're going to prepare to kind of lead us into this next movement, this next moment in our service. But I want you to see in our text the most important word. Now, I mean, stop and think with me. Like, do you ever think that prayer is a pretty daunting thing? I mean, have you ever had the experience of going in front of someone that you respect or that you had great reverence for, like your boss, or maybe you saw a movie star or something out in the blue and you're like, hi, uh, and then all of a sudden you just feel like you're trembling and you don't know what to say and you feel stupid or maybe this was you, this was uh, me the first time I called my wife, you know, I feel all, you know, nervous because I'm going to talk to the, the great, the beautiful Alicia Marie who I was going to ask out on a date, you know, and I feel all like fearful, what am I going to say, how am I going to say it, and then you're agonizing over it after the conversation's over, oh, what did I say, did I sound stupid? and have you been there? Like we do that in relationships with finite human people that are made of dust. But what do you say when you speak to the creator of everything that is? I mean, do you see what a daunting thing it is to come before the presence of the true and the living God? Annie Dillard put it like this, She said, to speak boldly in the presence of God, she said, think about what this is like. She said, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does none of us believe a word of it? It is madness to be wearing ladies' hats and velvet coats when we come to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. But do you know what you are doing when you enter into the presence of God in prayer? 
I mean, in his presence, mountains shake and thunder roars. And in his presence, the majestic seraphim cover their eyes and they do not start shouting day and night, holy, holy, holy. In his presence, even righteous Isaiah says, I am undone. And St. Peter says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. And the apostle John falls at his feet as one dead. I mean, what do you say in the presence of this kind of holiness and of this kind of majesty and of this kind of glory? I mean, what do you say in the presence of this God? Jesus says, say, Father. He says, say, Father. Now, of course, that name makes sense on the lips of Jesus. Because for all eternity past, Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father, has existed for all eternity in unbroken, unmitigated fellowship with the Father. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the infinite, eternal community of love that we name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. And so it makes sense that when the word, the eternal son becomes flesh and dwells among us, that he says, Father. But do you see what's happening in this prayer? Jesus is actually inviting you and me into the eternal relationship of the triune God. And if that feels deep, it should, because that's deep. This is the best of what we understand of Christianity, friends. This is it. There's this moment in the life of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry where he's baptized in the River Jordan. And when he comes up out of the river, the heavens are rent open and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and the Father speaks. And you, you just imagine a giant smile on the face of the eternal God as he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in that moment, we get a window into that eternal fellowship that's been going on from all eternity past. But then there's this other moment at the very end of Jesus's earthly life where everything's different. And Jesus is hanging on a cross. And on the cross, he doesn't cry out, my father. Instead, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Jesus is stepping into the God-forsakenness that you and I know and deserve on your behalf, in your stead, so that you can step with Jesus into the Father's delight. And he can speak that word over you, my son, my daughter, you belong to me. 